The sermon text for today is found in Romans 2, verses 17 through 24. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. O oh, Father in heaven, this is a, a weighty text. And I pray that you would come and minister the text to us. Lord, let your word be heavy and sweet and transforming upon us. Open the hearts of people to see the truth in it and to believe and be changed. Lord, we need you now in the preaching and the hearing of your word. Guard us from the evil one. Guard us from error. Guard us from pride. Guard us from fear and every form of unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a warning against anti-Semitism. It's a great sin and has been perpetrated against the Jewish people by Christians and non-Christians alike for centuries. What I mean by it is the, the terrible mistreatment of Jewish people simply because they are Jews. Let me give you an illustration of it. A shocking one from 1919. You could pick one from virtually any century. There were bands of Ukrainian bandits, the book writes, the book says. The most fearsome under the command of an anarchist and an anti-Semite named Makhno. Makhno's men delighted in drying the herrings, as they called the process of hanging Jews. They would suspend several between posts on a loose rope, and as the rope tightened, the victims tried to cling on to each other in their death agonies, while the Maknovitsi sat around laughing and drinking and betting on who would survive the longest. And then there's Christian England, who evicted from the islands 
1290 A.D., all Jews, and didn't allow a Jew in England for 365 years until Oliver Cromwell declared freedom of religion for Puritans and other nonconformists in 1655. Now, it's true that God reigns over these things and even uses them for his own judgments at times, as the prophets make crystal clear in Deuteronomy 28 and Jeremiah 9.16 and Ezekiel 5.17 and many other places. But never does that make hatred or persecution the less sinful. Remember the words of Jesus, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom they come. In other words, if there are judgments of God to fall upon Gentiles or upon Jews, woe to Christians who preempt and usurp the vengeance of God. It's one thing for God to undertake, according to his wisdom and justice, the judgments he sees fit on nations, and another thing for us to take the place of God or the devil. Now, I mention this warning against anti-Semitism because Paul, in this text, is continuing his indictment of the Jewish world as sinners. You see verse 17 there? But if you bear the name Jew, and then he unfolds why the having of all their advantages are no advantage if they don't live up to them. But Paul himself was a Jew. All the apostles of Jesus Christ were Jews. All of them. Jesus was a Jew. Chapter 9, verse 3 of Romans, Paul is ready to be accursed for the sake of the Jews. Chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And virtually every day of his life, he risked his life to bring hope to the Jews. Therefore, verses 17 to 20. Four are not a Jewish slur. They're not an ethnic slur. What are they? They are an argument that Jews, along with the entire Gentile world, are sinners and need the gospel. Where do I get the idea that it's along with the entire Gentile world? Well, let's, let's step back for a minute and just make sure we get clear where he's coming from and where he's going to. He's coming from Romans 1, 16 and 17 and that great declaration of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation... To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why is it the power of God unto salvation? Because in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. 
So he's coming from a declaration of the gospel of the righteousness of God given to people who don't have a righteousness of their own but must have a righteousness of our own or a righteousness that counts for us if we're going to pass muster at the judgment day and have eternal life. And so God brings a righteousness into the world through Jesus Christ, which by faith we may be attached to and thus have as our own sinners though we be, and thus be justified and set right with God and have eternal life. That's where he's coming from. That's chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the great theme of the letter. Then, in verse 18, he begins what he ends in chapter 3, verse 19... An indictment of everybody in the world. To show why this gospel and this kind of gospel is so needed. And he begins with the Gentile world. Verse 18 of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 1 verse 32 is all about this pagan world and their failure to trust God, honor God, glorify God and their being under sin. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he engages the more moral component of the world who have standards and who point their fingers at the degenerate pagans. And he says they too are sinners and need this gospel. And in particular, the Jews who had the highest standards of all, namely God-given standards, are among the sinners. So where he's coming from is a declaration of the gospel. Where he's heading to is summed up in chapter 3 verse 9 where he says, what then? Are we Jews any better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's where he's heading. From 118 to 319, it's all about sin. And everybody's included. So the point of these verses that were just read in verses 17 to 24 is not an ethnic slur. It is to get the apostles' arms around the Jewish people and help them wake up to the fact that they need the gospel and that it is valid to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he's willing to die to get his arms around those Jews like that. To help them see what their need is so that they will embrace and understand the gospel. So, bore in on this text with me for a moment and ask, what's the main point of these verses 17 to 24? What's the main point? What verse could you say everything else is supporting? And I would answer verse 23. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Now, the answer to that question is yes. And the reason we know it's yes is because the next verse is a quotation from Isaiah 52 that assumes a yes answer. But he asks it in a question, I think, to draw them in and help them 
see themselves for what they really are and provide their own self-indictment lest they get resistant and just push him away. So we should paraphrase it like this. You who boast in the law, through your transgression of the law, you do dishonor God. So the main point of this text, 17 to 24, is very simple. Jews dishonor God with the whole world. With the whole world. Where do I get that? I get it from chapter 1, verse 21. Where you have the issue of the honor of God again. Remember? He's speaking to the Gentile world here, even those who don't have any access to the Bible whatsoever. And he says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks. Jews and Gentiles dishonor God. And that's the main point of chapters 2 and 3. Or 1, 2 and 3, starting in verse 18. We all dishonor God. You see it in chapter 1, verse 21. They did not honor Him as God. And you see it in chapter 2, verse 23. Do you dishonor God? Yes, you do. The great issue of Romans and the Bible and world history and the universe and heaven and hell, the great issue is the glory of God, the honor of God. And until we get this, we're not going to get the gospel and we won't be saved. The great issue in this text and in this book is the glory of God. Here's a little support for that. A Bible verse that everybody learned if you were a church-going church going kid and you learned an outline of the gospel. The verse everybody learns for what is sin or is everybody a sinner is Romans 3.23. So you can drop your eyes down there to see it. Romans 3.23. There is no distinction. See, he's been trying to make that case. It isn't that there's any slur here against Jews or against Gentiles. There's no distinction. There's no ground for an ethnic slur. There's no distinction here. Color-wise, ethnic-wise, intelligence-wise. Why? For all have sinned. Now finish it for me. And? I'm going to get you to say it one more time. And fall short of what? The issue in sin is the glory of God, not the hurt of humans. And we've got to get a handle on this because everything, virtually everything in the 20th century, like I said last week, the century of the self. That's what it will go down as in my 
judgment. It will go down in history as the century of the self. Philosophically, culturally, religiously, the century of the self. And it will be very easy to document with 10,000 books and articles and seminars. But in fact, it should have been and will be seen to have really been the century of God. Because every century is the century of God. The glory of God is what matters in the world. Therefore, the definition of sin is not hurting me or hurting you or hurting children or anything else like that. That is sinful. But it is sinful in its essence because it dishonors God. All have sinned without distinction. And wherein does that common distinctionlessness lie in human nature and human action? It lies in this. A falling short of the glory of God. So, 2.23, Jews dishonor God. 1.23, Gentiles don't honor God. 3.23, that is what sin is. You see it? You see the structure? This is not hard. What is evil? Let's get a biblical notion of evil before us because... While there are many cockeyed people today who don't even think we should talk in terms of labeling anybody or their deeds as wrong or evil, they really do believe it as soon as you punch them in the nose. <laughs> or say something nasty about them, then they believe in evil. So everybody really believes in evil, but I'll tell you, very few today believe in evil as evil. Because they don't know what it is. So I will take what we've seen so far and give what I think is a distilled definition of evil. Here it is. Evil is feeling or thinking or acting in a way that treats God as less than infinitely valuable and infinitely satisfying. That's evil. I'll say it again. Evil is feeling things or thinking things or doing things which treat God as less than infinitely valuable and infinitely satisfying. And what you'll hear is that evil is abuse of people or someone who hurts me. Well, that's evil. But that's not the essence of evil. If that's all you think of as evil, you can never understand the gospel. Until God becomes the meaning 
of how we define evil and good, the gospel won't make any sense to us. Because sin is the problem to be solved by the gospel. And sin is a falling short of glory. That is, a doing of chapter 123. It's amazing to me. It's kind of like a strange numerical providence that all these 23s are here. You got 123, they exchange the glory of God for images. You got 223, they dishonor God through their breaking of the law. And you've got 323, defining sin as the falling short of the glory of God. So if you want an easy way to remember this, just think 123, 223, and 323. And it's all about glory. And it's all about God, whether it's defining what we ought to do or what we failed to do. You remember the sense of appalling dismay that Jeremiah expressed when he tried to get his head around the evil of, of Israel. <clears throat> Remember what he said in Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13? He said, Be shocked! Be appalled, O heavens, at this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's evil. The essence of evil is to walk away from God as infinitely valuable and infinitely satisfying like a spring of living water and turn to man-made cisterns that are all broken and can't hold the water of your hope, they can't hold the water of your longings, they can't hold the water of your relationships, they can't hold anything. They always let you down, especially when you die. And Jeremiah looks at that exchange described in Romans 1.23. They exchange the glory of God for images. Or Jeremiah 2.11. They've exchanged the glory of God for that which does not profit. He looks at that and he says, Be appalled, galaxies. Be appalled, quasars. Shudder, universe, at what Israel has done. And you have done. And I have done. Who in this room loves the glory of God? Anything like what the glory of God is worth. Who in this world or room feels feelings consistently throughout the day that correspond to the all-providing, all-sufficient, all-satisfying, infinitely valuable God who makes himself over to us in Jesus Christ. Anybody come close? Raise your hand. Me neither. Well, we're in trouble, I'll tell you. We're in big trouble because God values His glory. That's His very nature. To love that which is infinitely valuable is what God is all about. He's righteous. He does not love the unlovely unless it reflects 
his infinite value. So how can that be? How can I ever have hope then? And the answer is the gospel of God. The gospel of God. So I close by just reiterating it. According to chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for people like you and me. And it's, it's got to deal with glory now. It's got to deal with, deal with your belittling of glory. You belittled glory last night. You did. You belittled the glory of God last night. You belittle the glory of God with the ho-hum attitude with which you listen to sermons or sing songs or prefer football to worship. Or I mean, we are belittling the glory of God almost all day, every day. And bringing the wrath of God down upon us every time we do. So what's the hope? And the hope is this. God Almighty sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, His Son, into the world to do three things. Number one, to vindicate the glory of God. I could show you many texts, like the one in the garden. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Take this cup from me? No. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify my name again. That's why you're there, Son. So that's the first reason He came. To reestablish and reassert the infinite value of the glory of God by living for the glory of God and dying for the glory of God. The second thing the Son came to do was rescue you from the wrath of God poured out on those who belittle His glory. And He does it by establishing a perfect righteousness in the way He lived for the glory of God into which you can now be folded like an asbestos garment in the white hot flame of God's holiness. And how do you get into it? Faith alone. We are folded in to the righteousness of Christ who glorified the Father perfectly. And now in Him, we in Christ glorify Him with a righteousness not our own, but received by faith called justification. And the third thing He sent the Son into the world to do was to make us holy little by little. We all, 2 Corinthians 3, 18 Beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. And oh, too slowly, right? Oh, too slowly. Were it not for this second point of justification by faith, even our sanctification would be as filthy rags, would it not? Because it's just so far short of where we need to be and one day will be when in the twinkling of an eye we are changed into His likeness at the last day. But in the meantime, in the meantime, our little progressive likenesses, like your being here this morning perhaps, or your treating of somebody well out of the grace of God in your life, those little, little glimpses of grace in your life assure us that we are united to Christ by faith and He is our perfect righteousness. He is our perfect glorifying of the Father 
Let me just close with directing you to one more text. Look at chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, and we'll stop with this. This is the reason Christ came, put in two verses, applied to Jews and Gentiles. I want to come back to Jews and Gentiles as we close here. So that you can love Jews and love Gentiles of every ethnic stripe the way Paul did. He said, I say that Christ, this is Romans 15, 8. I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Now that means to Jews. Christ became a Jew to serve the Jews. On behalf of the truth of God, why? To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Stop. Christ came for the sake of the Jews. How? To reassert and reestablish the trustworthiness and the honor and the integrity and the righteousness of God, their promise maker. So that all the Jews would turn away from the broken cisterns back to the fountain and say, He's enough. He promised all these glorious things to us. Let's take Him, take Him as our treasure and not that. And the second thing He came to do was for the Gentiles in verse 9. And for the Gentiles He came so that they might glorify God for His mercy. So you got the integrity and the truthfulness and the righteousness and the trustworthiness of God in verse 8, born out for the Jews, and you've got the glory of God born out for the Gentiles through mercy. And beware, Gentiles, beware, lest you take the gift of mercy and walk away from the giver. Because this text says... God did not come for that to happen. God did not send Jesus into the world so that you might take the forgiveness of sins and walk away from God with forgiveness. If you do, you're not saved. Christians love God. Christians love Christ. Christians hold to a person. They love a person. God Almighty. He is their treasure. He is their life. He's their hope. He's their all. And they glorify Him for His gifts. They don't take His gifts and leave Him. They don't say, Oh good, I'm forgiveness. More TV. More money. More sex. Good, I'm forgiven. See you God. That's not what this text says. Christ came into the world for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy, which means, yes, you take the gift. I extend it to everybody in this room this morning. God will forgive you for trampling His glory in the dirt the last 53 years of my life. And if you see that for what it really is, that God and that forgiveness and that imputed righteousness and that sanctifying power and that vindication of God's glory for His people, if you see that, you will love that God. He will be your treasure. He will be your all. He'll be your hope. He will be everything to you.
And you will glorify Him. You will not be able to cease saying, I praise you, I love you. I want to think, feel, and act in ways that show you are my treasure. In other words, evil begins to be overcome and a new holiness begins to come in and the new person in Christ is one who begins to feel and begins to think and begins to do things that highlight the worth of God and the all-satisfying beauty of God. Let's close in prayer. And I want to just pray a simple prayer here that might help some of you channel the work of God in your life right now. If He's been at work in you, and I believe He has, one way or the other, everybody in this room, under the preaching of the Word, the Bible says the Word of God does not come back empty. Something is going to be done in your life. And I just pray earnestly that it will be salvation and not hardening. Isaiah was given that horrible mission to go and make the heart of this people fat and make them hard as he preached. I don't want that task for any of you. I want the task of the shepherd who finds the the one lost sheep and brings him back rejoicing. Father, together as a congregation right now, we say we renounce the belittling of your glory. We're sorry for it. We renounce it. We turn our backs on it. We want to be freed from it. We hate the way we've treated you as though you were not infinitely valuable and infinitely satisfying. We know that we deserve wrath. But we have heard in the gospel of Romans 1.16 and Romans 15.8 and 9, we have heard in the gospel that you are more than wrath. You are also love. And you sent your son Jesus into the world to vindicate your glory where we couldn't. And to rescue us and clothe us in righteousness where we couldn't. And to change us into the image of Jesus where we couldn't. And therefore it's all of grace offered to us for the receiving by faith. So we believe. Say that to the Lord if you mean it. Just say it in your heart. Not out loud. Just say it in your heart. I believe. I trust you. I take you for my treasure. I take you for my Savior. I take you for my Lord. I need you. I cast myself upon you for mercy. You are my only hope. There is no good apart from you. I'm going to stand here at the front. Prayer teams will be here at the front. If you want to deal with God with us, we'd love to do that. You're all dismissed.